Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Experience by Design podcast, where we explore experience designs of all kinds. I'm Gary David, and I'll be handling the duties for this week. Well, folks, it's official. We are now in election season. It does seem like election season never ended, given that after the last election, it seemed like we were into the next election, and that the election season lasts all year long. It's kind of like the weather in San Diego. Everything just kind of blends together because there's no clear demarcation between one season and the next. But we did have our first primary last night, as I'm recording this, the Iowa caucuses. In my opinion, if you ask me, and of course no one is asking me, if you can't easily explain a process, maybe you might want to rethink how that process is designed. I was chatting with my mom the other day, and she asked me to explain why the Iowa caucuses are important. And I told her, in all honesty, they're not important. And I couldn't have been more correct. Now, I know in some larger sense, there is importance to the Iowa caucuses. Favored candidates can have disappointing nights, or surprise candidates can shock everybody and start to build momentum. But overall, what impact do they actually have? Especially when the Iowa caucuses and primary night is completely foobar. And if you don't know what foobar means, do yourself a favor and look it up. We have no winner declared, conspiracy theories about why we have no winner declared, crashed apps, confused pundits, and corn dogs at state fairs. And if you have to feel sorry for anybody, you can feel sorry for the candidates who spent a lot of time at state fairs eating corn dogs. I've never had a corn dog or been to an IES State's fair, but I think I can go all my life without doing either. And it is a perfect time for our guest today, Whitney Quisenberry, who is the co-founder and co-director for the Center for Civic Design. Now, the center is fascinating, and it describes itself in the following way. To us, democracy is a design problem. The centerpiece of solving that problem is ensuring voter intent through design. Our goal is to make every interaction between government and citizens easy, effective, and pleasant. I think you'll agree with me that these are very lofty ambitions and ambitions that were never more important than they are now. I personally do have fond memories of voting when I was young. I would go into these giant booths, and I don't know if you've had the same experience of those gigantic election booths, where as soon as you went in, you pulled the lever, the curtain would close behind you and you were stared with these other large levers that you had to pull down to vote for your candidate. And it somehow seemed, as those curtains closed, that you were in this kind of sacred space. This gigantic machinery of the booth symbolizing the gigantic machinery of our democracy. It was this representation of our civic ideals in action. Everything I was being taught about in school, this idea of one person and one vote, with each vote counting the same. And I grew up looking forward to being able to vote, to being able to take my place in this historic process, this grand experiment of democracy. Taking pride in this right, which is fundamental to our society. And of course, early on in my life, being very young, it was a right that I naively thought everyone shared equally. Of course, voting and voter experience is not equal and has never been equal in American history. We can go back to how people had to fight and die for the right to vote, especially African Americans in the South. In a more contemporary sense, we can think about the striking down of the Voting Rights Act. We can think about and read about voter purges and disenfranchisement, which is ongoing. We have faulty voting equipment, especially if you're in poorer neighborhoods and you have outdated voting equipment. We have hanging chads and spoiled votes, trying to understand voter intent by virtue of some mark or sign made on a piece of paper which may or may not be discernible. We have voter IDs and provisional ballots, those provisional ballots not even sure after we make that ballot whether it's going to be counted or not, just trusting in the system to work. And of course, we have voting machines and unsecured systems and we have potential for great hacking by foreign powers. And the list unfortunately goes on and on. And with all of that, it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to lose trust and faith in what you think is the very foundation of your society. While many of us may have took this election process for granted, in all honesty, I don't know how many of us do now. 
except of course for my students who apparently don't think about voting at all and that's another depressing story for another depressing podcast but taking all this together it really does create this this sense of you know challenging our faith in this election process you know how much faith do we have in it and how much can we be sure that when we go into that booth or we fill out that piece of paper that our intent is being recorded this is why this is a great time for this podcast and a conversation with Whitney, who highlights the tremendous amount of work that is being done by many different kinds of people across the system to make voting accessible, transparent, and secure. We talk about the challenges, large and small, of creating a voting experience through civic design. How, interestingly enough, her inability to dance led to her career in UX. How little things can make for big experiences in voting and just in experience design. And finally, how participatory civic design is essential for a participatory democracy. So take heart, have faith, and enjoy our conversation with Whitney. How are you? Excellent. I'm great. How are you? Have a good holiday? Yeah, it was not bad. It's uh, It was good to get the kids back to school yesterday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, it was good to get the house guests on. Right. It's like, okay, I, I mean, you guys are great. I love you, but you need to go now and let yeah. someone else deal with you for a little while. You're not putting that on the air, are you? <laughs> Your children will never forgive you. Oh, well, there, there's plenty of worse than I'm sure I've said to them. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's just like one of those things, right, where you too much of a good thing and the need for structure and for engagement and, you know, the stimulation that I, I just cannot provide, it seems. Yeah, I also think it's habit. I mean, this is, this is actually one of the reasons why I, I don't think that elections should be on a holiday or on a Saturday, because what do you do on a holiday? Other things, right? But in a... When elections are on a, on, a, on a weekday, it fits into your normal life. And if it's, you have early voting over a period of time, then you can choose when you fit it into your life. So you get the choice, but you also get um, elections as part, of, as part of daily life. It's, you know, it is an interesting point, you know, just to kind of jump into the topic of, you know, elections. And it's always been one of the befuddling things how, uh, you know, Tuesday, you know, I suppose it's the second Tuesday in November, right? It, or is it the first Tuesday? I can't remember. Is first or second Tuesday? The Tuesday after the first Monday. Tuesday after the first Monday, because I think the reason had something to do with the harvest being harvest, in and people. Har- harvest is done and Tuesday right. was, mar- was a market day. Right. Right. And, and so here we, we are. So it fit into daily life, right? It would fit into a, an agrarian daily life, but you know. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, to what extent our elections today actually fits into our daily lives. And, and there's always this, this trade-off between tradition and history and, you know, the constitution and law, but also what's practical and meaningful, just even around technology. And I, I, for me, like my earliest memories of elections actually was going into the voting booth where you pulled the lever. My mom did, my dad did. Where, where did you, where did you grow up? I grew up in Michigan, okay. uh, just outside Detroit. Okay. And it was, uh, well, even more specific, because this does matter in how elections are administered, it was in Gross Point, Michigan, Gross Point Park. Mm-hmm. So just across the road, Alter Drive and Mack Avenue from Detroit. And, you know, you'd pull the lever, the curtain would automatically close. Mm-hmm. They would play with the knobs. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we'd do the lever and then we'd uh, walk out. It's so interesting. I grew up in New York City where we also had lever machines. And when I talk to people about their earliest um, memories of elections or their earliest you know, recollections, if they, if they grew up in a place with lever machines, they tend to have this incredibly strong memory. Uh, you see people actually doing the light show and then the lever and they take their hand, and they pull it across and they go and it went ka-chunk, right? That was such a visceral memory about how we voted. I think so. And, you know, I... And it was just one of those things where you, you just did it. Now, again, that's from my you know very narrow lens of growing up in essentially a suburb of mm-hmm. Detroit. Mm-hmm. 
but at the same time, I, I, you know, it wasn't one of those things where not voting was ever a thought, right? I just, I just assumed everyone voted and that's just what you did. And when I turned 18, I voted. And, yeah, uh, it, it is. It, it's so social. Um, the people who have had people in their family who vote are at such an advantage to people who haven't. So that means that if you're from a historically disadvantaged community and you're the first in your in your family to vote, or you're in, uh, in an immigrant family and you're the first in your family to vote, you have so many fewer traditions to draw on and assumptions to draw on about how this happens. Yeah, and I actually would like to go back a little bit because before, I mean, you've been doing civic design for a while, but that's not all you've done. I mean, I was looking at the work you've done in user experience. And how did you get started in user experience in the first place? Oh, gosh. Uh, I worked in theater. I was a lighting designer. Of course. I I figured that would be the direct trajectory from lighting design to ballot design. Well, it is. I mean, lighting design in theater is about creating the atmosphere and experience, right? Um, But no, the, the the real connection was that I could write. And uh, I had a friend who was working for a company that was doing something with this really interesting new thing called hypertext, and they needed someone to write some documentation. And they said, we can't find anybody. You can write. You're between shows. Why don't you do this? And the next thing I knew, I'd switch careers. And did you know, was all your education in lighting design and theater and, and productions and things like that? Oh, no. I had a, a general bachelor's undergraduate degree in, in English literature. Wow. And, but that's interesting because that then, you know, you said you know how to write. And one of the things that you're doing today is talking about using plain language. And so how do you get from English literature, which, I mean, just any English literature, are you talking about Shakespearean, which is not plain language, or at the time, it, well, I guess it was plain language, it was right? Plain I, mean, language. I, you know, look, I went, I went to a liberal arts college. And so I got, I got that education. Um, my parents were academics. Um, uh, I came out of school believing you could do anything you wanted to do with that degree. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't realize the truth yet. But I. But I started to do theater because you had to take. You had to take gym, but dance counted as gym, and the dance okay. department was really happy to see someone who was a complete klutz and couldn't get across the floor without tripping over her feet, but who was happy to do the lights. Nice. Right. Someone and so that. Some- yeah. So that got me into lighting. Uh, and and I think actually the the literature background, the be able to being able to read a play was all good. Um, and you learn tons about history and social because you have to do all the research about you know, setting for the play. And then I wandered into hypertext, which is probably the most you know at the time was really interactive, right? People were doing interactive fiction and really interesting things. Um, and you know, my career has really just been one thing leading to another in odd and interesting ways. The lighting part is fascinating to me because of, you know, you go to a concert and it's such, or any kind of show, any kind of production, and it's such a, a pivotal piece of the experience, but one that I don't know many people consciously think about. Do you, can you go to a play or to a, any kind of show and not think about it? Or is that something you always notice now? I have worked so hard to be able to just go to a show and not, I mean, I look around, you know, but, and, and I do but if I'm really noticing it, it's a bad job um, because I've, I, I got into theater because I liked theater, not because I liked lighting technology. Lighting was just what I did. And uh, to me, it, it, it's sort of the emotion. It, it's how plays communicate emotion. Movies do it with, with pacing. I mean, everybody does it with pacing and music and things like that. But lighting is how the director and the lighting director tell the audience what to pay attention to. Interesting. And when you got into UX with hypertext, there wasn't, I mean, if we were on the place in terms of jargon, there wasn't a user experience at that time. Was there, I mean, what, what was it being called at that moment? Uh, the company I worked for was calling it usability engineering, because of course, everybody takes a word and tries to fit it into the existing systems. And so we, there were software engineers, so we were usability engineers. Um, and we believed in usability testing. We, we talked about, you know, getting out and understanding people and all, all the right things. The, the guy who ran the company was a cognitive psychologist. But I have to say that last year, I probably talked to, you know, did direct user research with more people than I did in my whole career at Cognetics because it was still, we were still fighting for to get people to let you do anything. And now it's sort of changed to being something that's much more normal. Yeah, it is. And I, 
I think I mentioned to you in my emails, I teach in a UX graduate program. Mm-hmm. It's actually called Human Factors, which right. also dates that, mm-hmm. you know, the origins of the program. But I do get the sense, and I've not worked in it as a professional, but I do get the sense still that people have to fight for attention and not necessarily for a place to belong, but for a place in the process. I mean, where does it fit in? How much do we listen to it? How many resources do we have? How important is it really? Uh, to what extent do we have to talk to the people we're designing for? Do we assume we know them because they've always been our customers? And of course, we know what they want. I've been fa- Yes, I think this is always true. It's so easy to focus on the, the production, the means of production, the, you know, the, the tangible things, if you think of software as tangible. <clears throat> But even when we say we're, we're, we're really thinking about our customers or we're thinking about our users, they're the people who aren't in the room. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> right? They're the people who are not actually on the team. But the early days of user-centered design didn't envision UX as let's do a few usability tests. They actually envisioned deep involvement of the people for whom the software was being made. Um, just all the participatory design work that came out of Scandinavia was about engaging the people who worked in the factory, perhaps, in creating how computerization and how software would fit into their work, instead of assuming that an expert was going to come in, listen to a few insights, and wave a magic wand. There's a really great book, I don't know if you're familiar with it, because you brought up Scandinavia, um, called Design at Work. Mm-hmm. And yep. it, it goes back, I mean, you can you can kind of find it on Amazon. It's yep. not still in publication or your local bookstore, maybe, mm-hmm. if not, you're not in Amazon. But the idea of, it goes, I think, back to a 1991 conference in Scandinavia mm-hmm. that created, I think, like a, a list of user principles, mm-hmm. right? A, a user's bill of rights, if you will. Mm-hmm. And it was fascinating for me as a sociologist who's not from the psychological background, although I have a bachelor's in psychology, that... It seemed like, of course, of course, you would want to talk to your users. Of course, you would want to engage them in the process. Of course, you would want to think about the larger social implications of whatever thing you're designing and implementing. And of course, all design is political. Mm -hmm. And so at one hand, it seemed this whole computer-supported cooperative work world, you know, the CSCW world that was born out of that Scandinavian tradition was, should have been obvious, but I think it also speaks to how far away things moved from that, that it wasn't for people who are working in the profession. And they needed that kind of, you know, you know, flag in the ground to say, no, we, these things are important. We need to consider them. I don't know whether this is historically accurate, but my theory is that the whole idea of UX began to take off just about the time there were enough computer cycles to be able to pay attention to the interface, right? When it wasn't just a miracle that the computer could do the computation at all. And I think that UX, maybe that was where usability testing came in, but, or UI design. But where UX came in was when we all got smartphones and we started to see these incredibly powerful computers in the hands of everyday people. So it was when that, that transformation from the computer as a specialized device to the computer as an everyday device happened that we began to really think about how we, how we include people in this. And, you know, I would like you to start up front and think about it and, you know, really understand your audience, invite your audience in, invite them in to be participants, not just audience or users. Um, but it's also true that we see things like a lever, you know, a long, long, uh, long beta period. So we see people getting to try things before it becomes the full product. So maybe, right. maybe those, maybe the exactly how it happens changes. Um, I was, Many, many years ago at this point, I was uh, doing a project for National Cancer Institute that took me into some local hospitals. And I went to one in the middle of Pennsylvania, and they were describing how they uh, added new features to their electronic health records. And they said, we, we sent our staff out to the, to the, to the, group, the, the medical group that we're going to be working for. And we, they, they, they bring this thing called Camtasia with them, and they record what people are right. doing, and they come back with ideas. And I said, you know, we have a word for all of this. And they said, Oh yeah, we just don't use those words. We don't, we, you know, we try not to make it, we try not to, to make it mysterious sounding. And that in their, they had a very mature EHR at that point. And that one of the things that had happened in that period of time and by involving people directly was that the best ideas they had about what they should be doing and what features were needed were now coming from the medical unit and not 
from the IT group. Right. You're speaking my language. I teach a course on ethnography in the program. And this mm-hmm. is this is what, you know, we we like to talk about. And right. it, and for me, I, I've been teaching this class for 10 years now. And when I was initially asked to teach it, I had no idea what UX, UI, any of these things were. I was just an ethnographer. And I, I was an ethnographer who studies workplaces. And I study, amongst other things, technology and workplaces. As a sociologist, that's it. Mm-hmm. And then to get this, you know, this aha moment for people of, you know, the user is the person using the, the technology, not the person buying. That might be the customer, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> but the user is somebody different. And and then you get into the politics of, and this also relates to the election piece, of who you're designing for, who are you trying to please? Mm-hmm. The decision maker and what they're looking for, the user and what they're looking for, all of the above and more of a kind of an ecosystem approach. And a lot, a lot of people now, all thankfully, of are- are thinking in terms of systems of how all of these things are interrelated and connected, which for me at least goes full circle back to the Scandinavian folks who are talking about computer-supported cooperative work in this mm-hmm. kind of socially embedded understanding of technology and design, which is not just about an individual user and their ability to navigate a screen, although it's that too, but these larger implications of systems that are both, you know, the person's embedded in directly and indirectly through being in larger institutions. Yeah. When we started Center for Civic Design, we were thinking about how to create a better voter experience, right? So, uh, you know, how to demystify the language, write it in plain language, how to make the the interactions easier, um, you know, how to make sure that when someone took the time and effort to go have their voice heard and cast a vote that their voice that the that, that the things they meant to say were actually what we heard. And then we very quickly realized that we in order to do this you had to really understand election offices because they are the facilitators of the election process. And it took a little while but we then realized how many things that they do are constrained by law or custom or the voting systems they've chosen or just how their state is organized. Um, and so we began to think about how, uh, what kind of policies uh, help help create a good election experience, and that creates a good voter experience. And uh, things like we see policies that are good, well-intentioned policies, but they're implemented badly because in the law they write the words. So they say things like, uh, "Will be registered to vote unless they affirmatively decline." And now you're stuck designing a form that meets a law that requires an affirmative decline. Right. What's an affirmative, affirmative decline? decline? I right. Mean, right. What they mean is give them a chance to opt out, right? Or give them a right. chance to say no. But how do you get someone to say no without asking them to say yes? So all of these design issues uh, stem from how the people creating the new policy tried to turn that into language for a law. And so we began to think about plain language of laws. How do you actually start the process by thinking about what the experience will be like and then writing a law that says, make this experience. And when you talk about the Center for Civic Design, before I jump into too much of the nuts and bolts of this, how did it, is this a bar conversation that you're having? And he's like, you know what we should do? Create a Center for Civic Design. (laughs) Or how how does this even, you know, become a thing that we should do this? This, We need to make this happen. (laughs) Oh, gosh. It was a funny long history. In 2000, there was a big election in the United States, you might remember. I do remember it. I was also elected to the board of what was then Usability Professionals Association. And they said to me, you're going to be in charge of outreach. Go do something about elections. And I thought, <laughs> okay. what do I know? I'm a UX researcher. What do I know about this? But I knew how to listen and I went to conferences and I ended up on a federal committee for voting system guidelines. Uh, Dana Chisnell, who founded the organization with me, ended up doing some of the research that supported the development of the federal guidelines. And every once in a while we think, well, should we make this real? And we think, oh, no, it's a lot of work to start an organization. Let's just keep doing some things on the side. It's just fine. We met people, we talked to people, and one day, uh, we actually applied, we did, we did an NSF grant um, through the University of Minnesota, looking at um, how uh, systems interact with uh, poll workers in the polling place and how all of that contributes to running a good election. And uh, meanwhile, in California, they'd started a, a foundation and started a project called the Future of California Elections that brought together election officials 
get out the vote groups, all of the rights groups, and said, if we work together instead of in 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 adv- you know in, in oppositional advocacy, maybe we could make something amazing happen. And in fact, one of the outcomes of that group has been the new election system in California, and they had. Uh, a call for proposals for some work to do things like um, make voter information easier to use. And someone said, you guys should do this. And they said, well, you have to be a nonprofit. You have to, be an, you have to at least be an organization. We have to have someone to send the check. And so we uh, decided to, that was how we founded the Center for Civic Design was um, in response to a project that was big enough to make it worth taking, you know, the work we were doing and, and, and putting it into an organization. Uh, and that was in 2013. And we've been going strong ever since. For those who don't remember or might not be familiar with the 2000 election, the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, is the book by John Nichols called Jews for Buchanan. <laughs> yes, I have that. Um, right. So, and, 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 the, and the butterfly ballot that happened in you know right. Palm Beach, California, Palm Beach, Florida, I mean. Right. So this the, the Palm Beach story is actually kind of a UX tragedy because – what happened was that the, an election director in a, in a populous county with a lot of retirees uh, thought the, te- uh, the text on our ballot is very small and we have a lot of older adults and we know older adults need larger text. And by making the text larger, she forced more vertical space into the ballot. And the solution to that is to alternate left, right, left, right with the names and with the, with the marking sections down the middle. So by trying to solve a design problem, but not thinking about the entire user experience, she created an, a design problem that changed world history. Essentially, yeah. I mean, that's that's not. You know, I mean, that, that's putting it accurately. And did you ever have a, ta- a chance to talk with the person who was responsible for this? Because I remember at the time, at the time when this was going on, people were you know, a lot of theories about. Well, this was done by, um, you know, it was. Uh, uh, Secretary of State Harris uh, in Florida to make sure that, and all these conspiracy theories were coming out. And it turns out that this person was trying to do a good thing who ended up doing uh, an unintentional thing through poor design. Right. I mean, uh, I I, I did speak to her. She actually um, lost the next, it's an elected position. She actually lost her her position in the next election. Um, But in between, she bought new voting systems and she did a really good job in training all the poll workers. So uh, I think one of the challenges of elections is you get one shot at it. And right. um, it, it, it's an entirely a design problem by exceptions, right? Because the things that happen in design, it, it, when, when, when a design problem it causes enough perturbations in the election system to make a difference, it's because there's some sort of perfect storm, right? So things that you get away with when you have a short ballot become a problem when you have a long ballot, um, in California in 2016, uh, they had an open senatorial seat for the first time. And because of the way their primary works, it's an open primary, and the top two people in that primary go on to the general election. They had 35 candidates for Senate. Now, the pro- well, 34 plus a write-in. The problem with that wasn't the number of candidates, although that leads to some other problems in elections. The problem was that they couldn't fit all of those names in one column on the ballot. And one of the things that we know from both both what we know about from the research, but also from empirical evidence from elections, is that when you split a contest across two columns, people have a tendency to vote in both columns. They don't real they don't they miss the fact that it was one. And in fact, their overvotes were higher, but their overvotes weren't as bad as they might have been because the election officials noticed this and started fussing around about it and talking to each other. And they brought us into the conversation and we worked with a couple of counties and they did testing and we tried different regions. And one of the heroes of this was the ballot layout person who figured out that by just tweaking things a little bit, she could fit it on the back, even though you couldn't fit it on the front. And so the the counties each made their decisions about how they were going to take their voting system and their particular ballot layout problems and try to get this into one column so that people would not overvote. So, but you don't plan for those crazy things to happen Um, or you have to plan for something crazy to happen. You just don't know what it's going to be this election. And so part of our, part of what we see as our job is to help election officials be more resilient to help them think, well, if I'm trying something new, why don't I set up a table downstairs in the county building lobby and just intercept some people and get them to try it out so we know what will happen? 
Right. Right. We just worked on with the state of Michigan on an amazing project. It's the Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission. It was voted in um, as a constitutional amendment in 2018. New mm-hmm. Secretary of State came in uh, and, and launched herself in, and her department into working on it. And we ended up working on the application to be a, a commissioner on this commission. Um, we traveled to seven cities and towns. Uh, they did testing with 44 people, uh, plus all of the usual, uh, you know, open, open comment from groups. And not counting the micro changes, redesigned that application some 11 times. And wow. we had special project staff from the Secretary of State's office not coming along with us on the testing, doing testing with us. The Secretary of State? Not the Secretary of State herself, but her staff. Okay. Her Sec- staff. Gotcha. Secretary of State did something that no one's ever done. The, in Michigan, the Secretary of State also runs the DMVs. And she visited every single branch office, right? Got out into the field and from the Upper Peninsula to the middle of Michigan, middle of Detroit, you know, east and west, the whole state, went to every single office to get to know the people, both behind the counters and in the waiting room. When when you were doing when you were going around to the seven cities and towns in Michigan, how many times did people put up their hand to show you where you were going next? Because that's what we do in Michigan. You got to hold up your hand like a mitten to say, this is where you are, and this is where you're going to travel next, because Michigan is obviously shaped like a hand. Um, well, uh, the, the person who did that work for us is Christopher Patton. He's a, a member of our team, and he is local, and he lives in Detroit. So we had people okay, perfect. and the Secretary of State's office. And we spent a lot of time thinking about where we should go. Um, when we did testing for their new automatic voter, regist- new motor voter, uh, automatic voter registration, we spent a lot of time thinking about making sure that we were going to branch offices to do the testing that were in communities that were diverse and in, and different means of being diverse. So we wanted to go to rural places, but we also wanted to go to places like inner cities where there's longer waits. We wanted to make sure we were going to places where there were people who spoke different languages. Um, right. Uh, uh, all the many rich ethnic groups that, that live in Detroit and in, in Michigan. Um, and that we, we really spent some time thinking about how to make sure we were seeing participants who, as much as we could do it in the time allotted, looked like Michigan. We didn't go to the Upper Peninsula. I wish we had, but we didn't. You didn't go to the UP? No. Nope. It's pretty up there. You can go, go across the bridge and, um, you know, it's, it's a bit of a drive, but I used to go up there on vacation and it's nice. It's different. I mean, it's very culturally, we actually got the UP um, when we almost went to war with Ohio over <laughs> Toledo. And so we got it from Wisconsin. And so that's like the history of the UP. That's why they talk so different up there. Okay. But it is very culturally distinct. And for, for those who are listening, we do have listeners from around the world, actually. They might find a lot of this confusing in terms of the ways in which the, the U.S. Uh, you know, ed- you know, election system works. But even for federal elections, the manner in which these things are administered is on a state level basis. And then you can get down to a county level basis in terms of how the actual technology and townships. And- and, in, and townships in in New England and in Upper Midwest, uh, a, a township or a city runs the election. Now, there's an advantage to this. It's really local, right? That means that you can that there's some decision making about how the how what 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 will serve your community best. Um, but there's but the state does the the states because we're a federal federal system. The states set the basic rules. Um, so uh, when the state of Michigan uh, added, uh, changed their vote by absentee voting to be no excuse, so anybody could vote by mail. Um, they also designed a, an envelope in, you know, they had a committee get together and, and work, work with us on the design for the envelopes for the vote by mail ballots to make sure they would go through the, pre- the postal system well and to make sure that voters would recognize them when they arrived. So in that case, our ecosystem was 1,600 townships a state, um, millions of voters, of course, but also the postal system automation was a, was a stakeholder in our design. Interesting. Because it would have to be because of the expansion, especially I think it's in Oregon. Is it exclusively um, by mail? Oh, gosh. Oregon, um, Washington. Oregon started it, but it's now Washington, Colorado, uh, Nevada, Utah, and uh, California is in transition. Um Vote by mail is, is growing really rapidly. There's a, if, if anybody wants to see a wonderful map showing the progression, the Vote at Home Institute 
voteathome.org, um, has been tracking has been tracking this progress and sees it as a progression. You don't just go from everybody votes in a polling place on Tuesday to everybody votes by by mail ballot. And I think the really interesting models in California, in Colorado, and some of the newer states coming on board is not just that it's either vote by mail or don't or or go to the office. They actually set up vote centers. Um, where you can vote anywhere in the county. And those centers focus on assisting people who might be new to voting and need help, who might need have disability issues and need help, um, who might just like going there um, or in some way feel that, that voting in person is better for them. So now we have a situation in which the poll workers or the election workers can focus their time on helping the people who need the most help um, and people who want to vote by mail, and it's not even vote by mail anymore. In Colorado, 70% of the, 75, 75%, 77% of the ballots are returned not through the postal system, but to a drop box that are scattered around the county. So it's a direct, direct back to the, to the, and in California, a lot of people show up at the polls with their vote by mail ballot to drop them off at the polling place. Like they'll come, one person in the family might've already voted, by has their mail ballot, the other person is voting in person. They come together and one votes, in person at the polling place and the other drops off their ballot. So we preserve, they, that preserves some of the social aspect of voting. Um, but while giving people more time, also this comes with early voting, right? So because that means that those vote centers are open for usually 11 days before the election. So someone who needs to register, also those states have election day registration. So now there's a place to go where it can be handled um, accurately and promptly. And when you mentioned the 2000 election, I mean, we didn't even start talking about Ohio with with you know the long waits with Ken you know Secretary of State Ken Blackwell who was also the chairman of, of President Bush's reelection campaign right um, and there was this whole issue at the time because I, I this is my first year as being a professor or actually second year at my university so as a sociologist it made for ample conversation in class and the idea of you know, long waits and voting has always been a challenge for people of color in the United States. So this wasn't a new thing, mm-hmm. but, but I think it was maybe one of the first times that it's, you know, that, that conversation started to be elevated since the 1960s to a larger level of prominence around, you know, do we want to make it easier for people to vote or do we want to make it harder for people to vote? I remember in Michigan, the motor voter law that was passed when at the time Governor Engler uh, wanted to strike it down. And motor voters, when you go register for your license, you can register to vote at the same time. Right. But, but of course, they can't actually strike it down. That's a federal law. We wanted to, I was trying to remember, there was issues around not wanting it to be passed or not wanting it to, to happen. But I, I can't remember the exact details. But I think the larger question here is, you know, we would assume, I would assume, one might assume that everybody wants everyone to be able to vote and that should be easy. But I don't know that we can, can assume that anymore. Do, you know, to what extent is are people wanting to make it easier to understand ballots, to be able to vote, to understand their rights, to find polling places? And to what extent is that desire not equally shared? And what are your perspectives from the center on this kind of topic? Well, I think all things are true at once. Um, but my experience of working with the local election officials has been okay. that they want people to be able to vote and they want them to be able to vote well. And it's, it's, it's both a, an altruistic, but it's also a self-serving thing because when it's difficult, when, when elections are difficult, who do they call? They don't call the secretary of state or the governor. They call their local election office. So they want things to run smoothly. Um, uh, and so just that. But I also think you're right that there's been some real awareness brought to the inequities that things like districting can cause or that just the allocation of equipment, knowing that, <clears throat> that there's enough hours for people to come in and vote, that there's enough equipment where they vote. Um, we've seen some academic work that's been great from places like MIT, uh, election team who've been looking at uh, the math of how do you decide how many polling, how many voting booths you need for your voting system, for the length of your ballot, and for the number of registered voters you have. And how do you make those calculations so that you can make them accurately? We're all really focused on this for 2020 because every sign says that we're going to have historically high turnout. Right. The increase in turnout between 2000, it was a 34%, not 34 percentage points, but a 34% increase um, 
in turnout between the 2014 and the 2018 midterms. Every sign is that it's going to be high. New registrations are at record highs. There are some states that are advising their counties to, to have enough ballots for 100% of their voter registration because we think we're going to see numbers that top 80 and 90%. And when you go about doing this kind of work, t- to what extent is a traditional UX problem of you know, persona development, of trying to think about you know, a population in a location mm-hmm. and who we're des- exactly designing for? I know that there's issues around reading level or even uh, low reading or any kind of disability and language. To what extent is this a situation where you have, it's not just designing for the primary target audience, but for all target audience, because it's an election in which everybody can be involved? Absolutely. We hear when, when I, I mean, we go to a lot of election conferences now and election officials say things like, you need to think about who's in each district, because we know that even in a state that allows very liberal or encourages vote by mail, that new voters, first time voters tend to vote in person. Well, it makes sense. You're sort of, you're learning the ropes, right? So you like to go in person where there's someone to help you if you get into trouble and you want to see how it all works. So if you, if you have a district that's got a, a high, an immigrant population or a young, a young population or a college, you want, you might want to think about uh, provisioning your polling places with more, with more capability to handle voters uh, if you're in, a, if you have an area that has highly mobile voters, uh, you know, you vote where you're, you're, the ballot you get depends on where you live. So that means that if you're in a city where people move a lot, even between, you know, November 2018 and November 2019, people might have moved. I was doing, I was in the South Bronx. We were doing some in-person testing on, on some voting systems and ballot designs and testing error messages. And uh, at the front table, we sort of screened people and we would ask people, you know, are you registered to vote? I mean, that was a simple question. And the number of I don't knows was really high. And one person said, I don't know if I'm registered to vote. I was. I voted in the last election. I lived here in these apartments right here. But then I had a fight with my boyfriend and I ended up living with my sister in Staten Island for a while. And then I went to a place out in Queens and now they've moved me back and I'm in the same apartment complex, but I'm in a different building. Am I still registered to vote? Hmm. Right. And the answer is actually pretty detailed. Right. The answer might be yes. But and because if you're in the same precinct, you can update your address. But if you're not in the same precinct, maybe you can and maybe you can't. All these voter registration deadlines, they were these were all a product of of the restoration of the post restoration. So they were they were designed to to exclude people who didn't have regular lives, whose lives were more complex, who were more mobile. and who didn't, didn't, you know, well, had, had all sorts of, and so it was to create barriers. And I think a lot of what we're doing is beginning to knock them down because if we say there's a vote center and it's in your whole county or your whole city and you can go into any vote center and you can update your registration or create a registration right on the spot, then, you know, the deadlines are still helpful because they get people to do their paperwork early because, you know, everybody likes not to have last minute work, but it does mean that we can meet people where they are and, you know, make that step in the voter journey um, easier. We, th- I think when we think about elections from a structural point of view, you can see that it's a cycle, right? An election is announced and then there are candidates and there's, a, there's some deadlines and ballots go out and here's when you can vote and then here's how you count the results. And it's kind of a cycle. In fact, we all talk about it as the election cycle. But for voters, that journey might not start with registered to vote. That journey might start with, hey, there's an election. I want to vote for Joe. Or there's an election. What are we voting for? So they might start way at the end of the process, and then they have to back up and say, wait, what's this voter registration? Do I have to register? How do right. I register? Where do I register? What do I do? And then they might have other, you know, do I have to bring ID to the polls? Do I have that idea? There's a couple of nonprofits who do nothing, nothing but help people who need ID get the ID they need, because even the free IDs can cost money. If you have to go order a a duplicate copy of your birth certificate, that's going to cost something. Right. And this was a big issue. I know, I think it was, it might've been Pine Ridge. Um, I can't remember quite where, but there was an issue with getting people registered to vote and needing a street address, but in, on the reservations, there weren't streets. Right. There weren't street names. And so there was an effort. I, fr- I can't remember exactly. I think it was in South Dakota. Do I have this right? It was in the Dakotas. And actually, this is a, this is a happy ending story 
because right. they the 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 tribal leadership worked with the election department to create addresses and as people came up they updated their registration to their address so it was a huge effort and done in a very short period of time but that's a place where you know, the advocates and the election officials work together to make sure that people could vote. And I think there was a university involved using basically tiger files and GPS mm-hmm. to create street names. And yeah. it was quite involved. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, there, there's a big movement to GIS enabled elections, right? Uh, one of the things that we're learning is that there, there are little mistakes in the voter files. Like it's supposed to be that the east side of the street is in district one and the west side is in district two. And some of those houses might not be just right. So using GIS, figuring out the GIS rules. I mean, we're seeing a lot of modern technology be applied, not so much to the to the user to the you know actual voting in the polling place, but to the management of elections. Especially, especially as our population just moves more, um, things change more. We add election districts all the time. Every ten years, we've got the census, and there's redistricting. I mean, so right. uh, elections are not static, and uh, helping election officials have the tools to keep up so that. So that our voter rolls are accurate. One of the whole ideas behind Motor Voter and now automatic voter registration, which is sort of enhanced Motor Voter, is that one thing a lot of people do is keep up either their their ID from the DMV or their driver's license from the DMV. And why not keep up this other critical piece of democracy at the same time? And it sounded like such a, a radical thing to say that the DMV and the election office would share this data and make sure that people are, are, being, are being kept up to date as they move their address. In several states, including Michigan, those two addresses are linked. So if you change your driver's license address, it changes your voter address and vice versa. Mm-hmm. But I think that voters don't feel that way. I think that voters think that under the dome of the Capitol, there's a big computer system, right? And all right. the departments, all the departments are sort of tap into it. And so they have the question they have is, well, if I change my address on my DMV, why wouldn't they update my address everywhere else? Right. Let me talk to you about legacy systems and silos. That <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's not let's not go there. <laughs> right. But, that's that's an ugly story right. that no one no one wants right. to hear. And it, yeah, because as under as underfunded as election offices are, DMVs are even more underfunded. Although by October we will all have real ID, and that has that has triggered a giant update in DMV systems. Um, and that's helpful. So, and the other thing that the election offices have done is they've gotten together in something called ERIC, which is the Electronic Registration Information Interchange, something like that. And that that is a, a small group of data, data folks who um, comb the postal change of address and birth and death records. And for the states that are a member of it, they can say, here are people who we think might have moved out of the district where they're registered, you know, they've, they've moved from the address where they're registered with you, you should follow up with them. But also here are people who might have moved into your district who you might want to reach out to, to see if they, who don't look like they're registered and you might want to make sure they are. So it's both doing a, a cleaning of the roles and making sure that people who move, um, they may register at their new place, but they haven't told their old address that they've gone. And so making sure that those things get kept up to date, but also making sure that we can roll out the welcome wagon for people who've moved into a new address and need to get their voter registration up to date as well. One of the things you brought up, which is one of the great ironies or horrible ironies, depending on your perspective, is the fact that elections are so poorly funded and what is what we'd like to talk about as being, you know, the greatest democracy in the world. And as I was, you know, getting ready to talk to you, I was looking up some data from the election integrity project. And one of the things that it, that it stated, and this is from 2017, the U S ranks among the poorest, uh, Western democracies in terms of election access mm-hmm. or election, you know, fairness or freeness. And I think for a lot of Americans, at least that would be a surprise for some Americans. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be a surprise at all, but mm-hmm. this idea that we don't fund our elections adequately, the resources to guarantee their integrity has not improved since the last election even though the threats are made to be very real, we all know what the threats are. Mm-hmm. The, the assessments have been made by any number of government agencies, by the Senate. By the same time, there doesn't seem to be a hair on fire. Oh, yes, there is. Is there? Yeah, among election officials. Yeah. I mean, look, the Belfer Center at Harvard set up a uh, sort of tabletop exercise for security, and I think every state has run that more than once. States are uh, county, states and counties are beginning to to adopt risk limiting audits. It's not even, but there is definitely 
high, heightened awareness of the issues and, and more solutions being developed to, to make sure that we can not only run a good election, but know that we've run a good election. I guess I guess I was referring to, well, in two pieces. Number one, in the public consciousness, there's like one of, one of the projects that I'm working on as a total side project is on digital psychiatric tools and people's use of mental health apps for their own, mm-hmm. you know, self-care. Mm-hmm. And when I would talk to clinicians about, are your patients concerned regarding their privacy and security of their mental health data? They would say, no, then people just assume that they have no privacy and security. So it never comes up. So I think on a public level, I don't know if there's that awareness. And then at the, at the, at the, at least at the Senate level, the leadership in the Senate, there has been no, I don't know in the house there has been, but there's been no movement to pass anything any kind of additional funding to lead to greater actually, election actually, integrity. There was just a new transfer funding that was passed. Um, okay. But, but also um, this is a, an, a byproduct. I mean, I'm not, I'm not excusing the Senate or, or the leadership, but one of the byproducts of being a, a, f- a federal system and having local counties run elections is that uh, there's not much that the federal government can do at the last minute. Right. I mean, the Voting Rights Act, even eviscerated the um, National Voter Registration Act, which is Motor Voter. Um, they can. The Election Assistance Commission has, you know, been underfunded for a decade, um, but has trying manfully to um, to be to to be a clearinghouse for information. The Department of Homeland Security has actually now started to pay attention, not so much to doing things for for election office, but to communicating with election offices helping them mm-hmm. monitor, helping them learn what good practices are, helping them set up uh, defenses on their own system. So that work is, ha- that work is happening. It's, it's, it, it's uneven, right? The future is always uneven. Or the, you know, the future, the future is always unevenly distributed. So there are places that are better than others. Um, smaller districts are probably behind because they're less well-funded. A larger district um, has, even if their per capita funding isn't that great, they just have more bodies to, to, to work on right. things, and and they probably have a better IT department or or an IT department at all. Or an IT well, every county has one somewhere. It might not be a very big one, but um, and the whole issue of, of ransomware, which isn't really a specifically an election issue, has made municipalities and states much more aware of the need to secure, backup, treat properly, do all the things that that we get told to do. To make their system to harden their systems, right? And one of the things I like about the Center for Civic Design, when I was looking over the materials, is in the midst of all these grand and great challenges, there's there's really simple stuff. One of the one of the examples I pulled from, I think it was the report that was done with the Brennan Center mm-hmm. for Justice. Mm-hmm. It was clear and simple language. So the before and after was great. I'm just going to read it. If an overvoted ballot is encountered, the voter is entitled to another blank ballot after surrendering the spoiled ballot. That was the before language. And the after is, if you make a mistake, ask a poll worker for another ballot. Thank you. Love that line. Help write it. <laughs> and, we've continued, <laughs> and we've continued to work with them. We did, we did Better Ballots in 2008. And it was a, a, it was a collaboration between Brennan Center for Justice, which is a legal rights center founded by the family of Justice Brennan, uh, Center for Civic Design, and some political scientists who do data analysis of elections and were looking, had been looking at elections that had anomalous results and trying to understand what had happened often. And they'd come to many of the same conclusions from that perspective <coughs> that we did from just looking at design. So we did this first report. We did a second report in, 20, in 20, 2012. Uh, they continued to bring out reports. And in fact, we're just starting to set up a project where we'll be looking at primary ballots with them in the hopes that if there are problems that we can see, we can either get them to change the ballot or, or at least do voter education around it. Right. And that does, this actually gets into this burgeoning area of legal design, which, mm-hmm. you know, how do we take legal language, which elections are often coded mm-hmm. in legal language mm-hmm. and simplify it for the non-legal audience so that, you know, at the one hand, we want to make sure that we cover a legal basis, but not, you know, it doesn't have to read like you're buying a house or applying to refi for your mortgage. Oh, well, it shouldn't, uh, buying a house or refining your mortgage shouldn't read like that either. <laughs> no, exactly right. You know, and, and, you know, we've been learning from people like Jenny Reddish, um, who's one of the, 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 well, in, in the UX world, she's the grandmother of plain language um, and uh, from the Center for Plain Language in Washington, which is the advocacy arm, plainlanguage.gov, which is the internal government work. They're, they're, the knowledge is out there. Uh, the, the goal, the, the challenge is to get everybody to believe it, 
We get everybody's eyes and ears retrained so that a simply worded instruction or simply worded, you know, description sounds authoritative. Right. And, you know, clear this idea of, and directional and just, you know, not just metaphorically directional, the fact that there's a whole listing on your website about uh, a project to redesign the signs about where to vote. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, that's like one of those things where you would not, if you take the entire journey, that all those touch points, that's a touch point. Yep. You know, where do I go? Do I go up the stairs? Do I go down the stairs? Does it, does it excite me? Does it create this sense, you know, the American flag is there. That's cool. Does that, is that what we want to make it? Do we want to make it look somewhere else? And you had a project mm -hmm. with the university to redesign where, where to, where to find a vote. Mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, it's the little stuff. It's all the little things about design that add up to the big experience. Uh, so if the if if your vote by mail ballot comes in the mail and you can tell it's a ballot and it doesn't look like junk, when we did the the first project we did in California was uh, California has laws that require a huge amount of information to be mailed to voters, and uh, we had a nice fancy uh, description of the project. But I, but here's how I put it in in colloquial language. The real question was, if we're going to mail all this paper to voters, can we make it worth the trees that died for it? <laughs> that is because, a good way of putting it. Because, yeah. if we're, it because giving people information they don't understand might be worse than giving them no information at all. Because no information at all, you'll ask your friends, you'll muddle through, you'll do what you do. But when you get, things that, when you get information that makes elections sound hard makes them sound, it makes them off-putting and it makes you think I'm not smart enough to vote or I don't know enough to vote. And as we did the testing for that project, which was, you know, many of our ideas were adopted by counties across California. Um, we, what we discovered was that everybody we talked to felt underprepared for elections. And what really brought it home to me was uh, we were at a, a church on a Sunday afternoon. They had a little fair going on outside and we had a table and one of the people we spoke to was a civics was a teacher, uh, and he his his he did civics lessons. They would actually look at some of the ballot measures, and the, the class would work through the issues of it, and they'd think about it and decide, you know, and think about how you would decide how you're going to vote. This is pretty intense. I mean, think about the preparation a teacher has to do. And he said, "But when I go into vote, I still don't feel like I'm prepared." Mm -hmm. That's shocking. And so part of your job then, and I mean, at what point for the Center for Civic Design do you bound, you know, boundary what it is that you do? Because there's so much to do. There's, you know, technology, there's integrity, there's paper ballots, there's voter education, there's plain language and accessibility, ease of use. Is there the potential, do you think, for, you know, scope creep where you start to take on too much or, you know, oh, to what extent is, is there this kind of, well, no, we got to stay in our lane. This is our lane right here. Well, there's always scope creep and we stay in our lane, not so much because we want to have a lane, but because we're five people, uh, five and a half people. And so there's only so much we can do. So we think about where, where is our expertise as UXers? Where do we bring something new? So we do a lot of work with states where we're, we're solving a problem. The call we get is often something like, we have to redesign. We want to redesign our voter registration form. Can you work with us? And we say, great. Yeah, sure. We can work with you. And the outcome of that will be, in fact, a new voter registration form. But what we're doing is teaching them how to redesign a form because they work with us or we work with them more appropriately. They, they do testing with us. They see how it happens. So there's nothing wrong with having, a, you know, a company or an organization or, you know, an external company design things, but, but we want the election officials to have a, a sense of when it's good and we want them to be able to do it themselves. And uh, I think the highest, the highest person we've ever gotten was the state election director in a state actually ran usability sessions with us and says, I will never do a major project without that not because not just because it's good politics to go out and include voters in your process but because they tell you things that you can't see because you know too much about elections exactly yeah no i, I think it's a great way of putting it that you know the more you right. more you think right. you know right. the more blinded you are to what there is to learn right so we have you know we have focus areas we have we're doing a lot of work on the new automatic voter registration work and other other voter registration modernizations um, we do work on language access because we think this gets at the whole question of new voters and low literacy and um, you know languages like Spanish and, and Arabic 
access. Uh, and we do work on um, vote by mail because we did this project to design the vote by mail envelopes for California. We're now taking that national. Michigan is adopting them. A couple of other states are beginning to adopt them. A bunch of counties are. Um, and the Postal Service is really excited because they would like to have one standard for the outbound envelopes so that they all kind of look the same because that will help their postal carriers. It kind of reminds me of the old days of, of survey design. When we used to do mail surveys, there was all this research that was done on what weight of stock paper would result in a higher response rate or what mm -hmm. color of paper or things like that. You know, and, and we have, of course, we've gotten away from those concerns and in, in survey research because it, so much is done online. But here with voting, it's, you know, what colors, you know, on your website, it's like what font to use and what font not to use mm -hmm. and you know, what size font should you use? Well, and, well here, and we learned it's actually simpler than you think. Because the answer is, it's not the font. It's have one of uh, any number of fonts that are clean, open, sans serif fonts. Open meaning that the, the height and width of, the of an O would be about round rather than some sort of angly, color, angly shape. But a clean sans serif. Sans serif because the serifs are confusing uh, to people who don't read English as their native language. Um, and they mm -hmm. add noise on the page. So they just make the page noisier, despite all the books that were printed with sans serif type. This is a different problem. I'm with serif type. This is a different problem. And the answer to the text size is bigger than you think, right? The sweet spot for text size is between 12 and 14 points. Hmm. And we print, we print things at eight and nine. Now, there's a lot of stuff that's a 10, and you can get away with 10 points if you've designed it well, if you have good line, line you know, space between the lines and the, and the, and the margins aren't too wide. So you can get away with smaller fonts, but finding the balance between something that has so many words in it that you have crammed it onto the page. And so when they can, we try to help them reduce the number of words, put list, put list into a list. So if you're saying there's four ways to do something, put in a list and you can see one, two, three, four, you know, actually we wouldn't number them, bullet, 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 bullet. Right. But make the, if you think about someone explaining something with hand gestures, right? And you say, well, there's four things. One, two, you know, you explain one and your hand is making little gestures in the air. That's what bullets are, right? right? They're the, they're the, they're the, the little bumps, the little stops that make you go, okay, this is the first one. This is the second one. Right. So, so the techniques are not hard. That is one of my greatest aggravations is that when I'm reading a paper, reading something and the person says, this is like an academic paper or any kind of paper, mm -hmm. you know, there are four things to keep in mind first, blah, blah, blah. And then there's no second, third, or fourth. Then I'm left with, well, where's the right? Or no, I got to do the work. Or semicolon. <laughs> we were working on a voter registration form, and there's a, a voter's affirmation at the bottom of it, and we weren't allowed to change the words. Um, there were no, there were no law. The, that law was not being changed. Just the form. And what we discovered was that if we just took that and we took every semicolon and put a bullet after it, right? So we just broke it. We broke this long sentence that was really a list of things you were affirming, and we just put each semicolon clause into its own bullet. We actually watched voters testing the testing this form, and they would have their pen in their hand, ready to sign, and they'd read it, and they'd say, "Voter, you know, here's your voter oath," and they go, "Yep, I'm that. Yep, yep, yep," and then they'd sign. And I felt like it's it's a magic trick, right? Because we now see people signing something that is in fact a legal oath that has criminal penalties, and knowing what they're signing. And what I love about that story is your your career started out in lighting design, where you were trying to direct people's attention using lighting, and here you are today trying to direct people's attention using fonts. You got it. And, and it's a natural it's a natural progression. And if you were if you could dance at all, if you had any kind of dancing ability, we might not be having this conversation right now. That's true. So I mean, the, the upshot of all of this is we owe we owe your your contributions to our democracy to your inability to dance. Be a klutz, change the world. And so for people who are listening to this and they want to get involved, support, uh, learn more about the Center for Civic Design, what opportunities are there to support it, get involved, work with, because you're only five people, there's a lot of work to be done. What's, what's, their, what's their pathway, their journey to becoming part of this larger effort? Well, our site is the Center for Civic Design, um, civicdesign.org. We keep what we call an irregulars list in an homage to, to um, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, people who would like to do something in elections but not give up their full-time job. Because when we are working in a, in a geographical era, we'll often call on people or just let them know about job opportunities or project opportunities in their area, just a way to keep in touch. Uh, we, of course, accept donations as a 501c3. Uh, but the thing we tell people the most is start here. Go 
to your local election office and volunteer to be a poll worker. You will learn so much about how elections work and you will get to know the people and maybe you become someone who helps them review the translations of their materials or uh, help run a get out the vote drive, right? So there are so many opportunities to get involved at a local level. Uh, we just said these are under-resourced departments, and there's one close to everyone. And it matters to all of us because regardless of the who you're voting for or what the election is, it all you know all all politics is local. All elections are local, and so it matters directly in your lives. And this is one of the things I tell my students all the time who often don't vote: mm-hmm. is this matters to you today, and it matters to you tomorrow. And so you should have an awareness of both civically how it works. Mm-hmm and to make sure that it works for everybody. Vote for your mayor, vote for your city council, right? They're the people that make the laws that affect your daily life. And so I think with that, I think, is there anything else that I didn't cover that you think is worth ah, no, important gosh. to mention? No, it's been a great conversation. Go, go vote. If you're not registered, get registered. If you're not, if you, if you don't, if you think you won't be home on election day, sign up for an absentee ballot. Vote early, vote often. No, no, no don't no. do that. Vote early. Just vote early. Yeah, and vote once. We don't want to have any any issues. And I should just mention there as I make that joke that the research has indicated there's a very, very small number of voting irregularities that happens with people with voter fraud. So before anybody gets yeah. stuck on that track. Brandon Center says that you're more likely to get struck by lightning than commit voter fraud as, a, as an individual voter. Well, let's hope that neither happens. Indeed. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Whitney, so much. Thank you. A very special thanks to Whitney for a great conversation and civics lesson on how experience design is fundamental to voting. Really do appreciate her insights and how things work, how they can be improved, and what you can do to get involved. For those listening in the U.S. especially, it is our democracy together and we each have a role to play in this presidential election season that is underway. So go to civicdesign.org to find out more about the Center for Civic Design and how you can take part. And thanks everyone for listening. And if you have ideas for future episodes or feedback on past ones, go to feedback at experiencexdesign.com to provide us your thoughts. We really appreciate the feedback we've gotten so far as we try to create our own little participatory podcast space here. And you can go to experiencexdesign.com to subscribe to our feed as well and check out past episodes. Please consider donating through our glow.fm link to help us fund the podcast that we're bringing to you. And finally, make sure you register to vote. If you think you are registered to vote, make sure to check your registration that you are registered to vote. Help others register and help your local election board with your design expertise. Finally, remember that democracy is not a spectator sport, but it is a design challenge. So go forth and meet that challenge. Bye.